0: We are beginning today a new series in the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking at the first, uh, first portion of Mark from now until Easter. And uh, I'm, I'm going to begin this morning by giving uh, an introduction, to a brief introduction to the Gospel of Mark, and then we'll read the passage uh, from Mark 1 that's in the bulletin and, and dive in a little deeper. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible... Uh, the Gospels are the four written records of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that, from the, the first century A.D. Uh, that are recorded for us and, uh, in the New Testament. And the reason there are four of them is because in the Old Testament, it's said that every testimony... Uh, you know, in a, in a court of law, it would be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So how did you know that something happened? You needed two or three witnesses to confirm it. And so here we have the most important event in history. The Son of God became a man and died for the sins of the world. And so the Lord says, we don't need two or three witnesses. We need four witnesses. And that's what we have that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the four Gospels are the four witnesses Uh, eyewitnesses of uh, what happened in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And it's important to understand that when we say that when we're reading the Gospels, we're reading eyewitness testimony, it means that these are not legends. Legends are stories that communities tell over generations, and they're kind of passed down Uh, orally that parents tell their children and then tell their grandchildren. And and they're kind of morphed and they tell about events that happened, uh, you know, a long time ago in a land far, far away. We don't really know exactly where they happened, but they teach kind of moral lessons uh, about life. But the Gospels were written in the first generation of Christians by people who were closely associated with both Jesus himself and his apostles. And so Mark also called John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We know that he was an early missionary. Uh, It talks about him in the book of Acts. He he worked with the Apostle Paul. He worked with Barnabas. Actually, Paul mentions him in three of his letters. And even more importantly, uh, uh, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5 calls Mark his son in the faith. And the reason that's important is because uh, some very early sources outside of the Bible tell us that the Gospel of Mark is basically Mark writing down Peter's eyewitness account. And Peter was Jesus' closest friend. And so Mark was writing down what Peter said he saw and, and, and what happened. And so what we have, um, oh, and also in the end uh, of this Gospel, in the Gospel of Mark, there's a, there are two unnamed characters that appear. One is the man who hosts the last, the Lord's Supper, the last supper at his house. And then at Jesus' arrest, it talks about a young man who was wearing a cloak and someone pulled his cloak off and he had to run away naked. And you read it, and you say, who, why is this in here? It just mentions the naked guy running off. And people say, well, that's probably Mark. And what he's, he's just, he doesn't name himself, but he just says, maybe he's the one who hosted the Lord's Supper. And maybe he was the one who ran away naked from the, the arrest. But he was there. He saw these events And so what we're reading about the gospel is not a legend. It's the eyewitness historical record of what happened to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so toward the end of the first generation of Christians, when all these eyewitnesses, the people who knew Jesus, started to die off, they said, we need to write down what we saw. And that's what happens. We have these four records of eyewitnesses who who, uh, wrote them down. Now, it's important to recognize... That history is always selective. So for example, if you read a you know, modern biography about some famous person, you'll find that the biographer can't tell you everything about their life. They have, you know, 300 pages that they need to write. So they're going to pick certain events, and they say, I really want you to know who this person is, and what are the events that really tell you who they are, let you into who they are. And it's the same with the Gospels. These are historical eyewitness records, but the Gospel writers are not just telling you historical events they've selected certain events that let you into who Jesus is they want you to know Jesus Christ and what in particular does Mark want you to know about Jesus Christ well this passage we're about to read it's, he says this, says it right at the beginning in verse one the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of God he wants you to know that Jesus is, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so what you have is a historical record of real events that happened in Galilee and Judea during the Roman Empire in the first century. We have real events that happened. But more deeply, Mark wants us to come to be, and believe that Jesus is the Son of God who has come in love to us. And when you know this, he says it's a gospel. It's good news, which means it is the source of the deepest source of human happiness is to know this truth about God coming to us in Christ. And so for the next several months, we're going to be looking paragraph by paragraph through the gospel of Mark. And, uh, and today we're looking at, at a part of the prologue, the very beginning of the, as he sets up his gospel, the first eight verses of, of Mark. Uh, so you can follow along right there in your bulletin, Mark 1, verses 1 to 8. This is the word of the Lord. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we long to hear from you. And we uh, want to believe deeply that Jesus is the Son of God who is He's come to us in love. We long to be filled with wonder at such a mystery. And uh, Lord, uh, we know our own spiritual poverty, that uh, we can't understand such mysteries unless you come and open our minds by the grace of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would do that now for us as we give ourselves to your holy word, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we're looking this morning at the prologue of the Gospel of Mark, I think much of the meaning of the prologue is found in the in the very first word of this gospel there in verse one. And you see it, the beginning. What does that make you think of when you hear the words the beginning? Well, a Bible reader it immediately takes them back to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 when God first made the world. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Actually, in the Greek Old Testament, this is the same Greek word, arche. And uh, Mark is saying, something like what happened way back in the you know, ancient, when God first created the universe, something like that is happening again in the coming of Jesus Christ, in the birth of Jesus on Christmas. And as we celebrate Christmas and we say, what does it mean that the child Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary? It means that that baby is the beginning of a new world planted in the middle of the old world. There is a new world that God is forming. And how does a baby, the beginning of a world, where it's very similar. When you go back to when God first created this world, what does Genesis 1 tell us? Well, it says that the earth was dark, formless, and void, and God spoke, and he said, let there be light, and there was light, and then, you know, it, it, the, the earth was, you know, desolate, and there was no life in it, and then he spoke into it, and there were trees, and there were birds, and fish, and creatures crawling everywhere, and there were humans, there was life all over the earth, that's what God does, and so as real as the sun is outside on this sunny day that just brightens up the world. And as real as those trees are out there that are growing out of the ground mysteriously, in Jesus Christ, God is bringing light into our lives. If you experience darkness in your lives, in your soul, Jesus Christ brings light. If you feel barrenness, you know, void, a void in your soul, Jesus Christ brings life. As real as this creation is, is as real as the new world that God is creating in Jesus Christ. And so our topic today is how Jesus Christ is the beginning of a new world. And to understand that, I want to answer two simple questions for us from Mark chapter 1, and this is this is what they are. Why is the new world coming? Why is God making a new world? And how will I know if I've entered into that new world? Become a part of that new world? Why is God making a new world in the middle of the old world? And how will I know that um, I have entered that new world? And my hope is that as we come into Christmas, this picture of God, you know, it's it's such a wonder that he'd make this universe, that he's doing such a wonder again in Jesus Christ would just capture our our hearts and minds and our imagination. So two questions this morning from Mark chapter 1. The first is this. Why is a new world coming? Why is God starting a new world in the middle of the old? And the answer from this passage is because he promised to do so. He's doing what he said he would do. And you see what Mark says there in verse 2. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I'm sending my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now something that's interesting about this verse is Mark says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and then he doesn't quote Isaiah, he quotes Malachi. Actually, he quotes Malachi in the first part of the verse, and then he quotes Isaiah in the second part of the verse. And you might say, well, did Mark misquote? And it uh, it could be, you know, some manuscripts say that Mark actually wrote, as it is written in the prophets, and that would be accurate. But it could be that the Jews... In the first century, had already made a connection between Malachi and Isaiah, who were written 250 years apart. And he said they're writing about the same event. There is one who is going to come, and that God had promised repeatedly throughout the Old Testament that God is going to come and start a new creation in the middle of the old creation. And uh, in both Malachi and Isaiah... There's this promise of the new world. Actually, in the beginning of our service today, uh, in the call to worship, we read from Isaiah 43. And it talks about, there's the, you know, the, in the desert, there's going to be these streams of water. and new life is going to burst forth. God has been promising he's going to do something like that for centuries. It's in Malachi. It's in Isaiah. And if you go to Malachi, Malachi says, here's going to be the sign that the time has come, is Elijah, the prophet, will show up again. And if, if you go back to 1 Kings and read about Elijah, he was this prophet who wore camel's hair and he had a leather belt and he ate locusts. And then all of a sudden you read about John the Baptist here in verse 6 and it says, now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild's honey. And so anyone would say, oh, Elijah has appeared. The new world is about to begin. And uh, Isaiah also tied the new world to the coming of a voice out in the wilderness. And you see there in verse 4, it says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So Mark is saying, according to both these uh, prophets, the promised new world has begun, is coming in the person of Jesus. And so when we ask, why is God forming a new world in the middle of the old world? uh, It's the same answer to why did he make a world in the first place? Why is this world here? You know, I remember as a kid, I, I didn't grow up going to church and, you know, learning about the Bible or anything, but even though I wasn't a religious kid, I remember being in my bedroom and looking out my window, and I'd look at the sky and the blue, and I would think so hard. I was like, why is this here? Why is there even anything in existence? Why is there a universe why do I even exist? And, you know, how did we all get here? And, uh, and the only answer to why there's a world is because God decided to make a world. It just came out of who he was. It wasn't, a, it wasn't our idea. We wouldn't have thought of that. We wouldn't have thought of a round world floating in space, around a big giant ball of burning, you know, gas. We wouldn't have thought of snow and noses and rhinos. We wouldn't have thought of any of that. You wouldn't have thought of it. It's only because God, out of his delight, decided to do it. And it's the same with this new world. You wouldn't have thought of the Son of God becoming a baby in a manger and then dying on the cross for the sins of the world. You wouldn't have thought of it. God decided to do it. And the reality is when Jesus Christ comes into your life, you will also find it was not something that you decided to happen. You know, God brings people into your life that you didn't invite them and then they just showed up and they they love the lord and they tell you about the lord god says things to you that maybe you didn't want to hear it wasn't your idea and he shows up telling you those things and those are the things that create a new world new worlds are created by god's initiative by his purposes alone and so when god makes a new world and changes our lives it won't be our idea And you see that every other spiritual endeavor in the world is about learning techniques about how to get in touch with the spiritual world. Whether, you you know, you're trying to attain nirvana or submit to Allah, it's all about us. But the gospel of Mark begins emphatically with something that God is doing. Something that God has promised, something that we didn't ask for, that we didn't even think of. And um, I, you know, I like to think of this in, in John Milton's uh, great epic poem, Paradise Lost. There's a scene where in heaven, God the Father and God the Son are having this conversation. And it's before the fall of humanity. And they're talking about how what's going to happen. God has created this new world. And there's these humans. And the humans are going to rebel against their creator. And then uh, and, and they're going to die. And they're going to become corrupted. And so the son of God makes this plan. And he says, I'm going to go save them. I'm going to go down to earth. And I'm going to save all these humans. And he's talking about his plan. And this is one of the lines that he says. He says, and all comes unprevented. Unimplored, unsought, happy for man so coming. And those three words, unprevented, God is going to make a world no one can stop him. Unimplored. We didn't ask God for it. We wouldn't have thought to ask for it. The work that God's going to do in our life, we couldn't have. And then unsought. We did not seek out God. He is seeking us out. And so why is the new world coming? Is because it is God's purpose to bring it. He is the chief actor. He is the one who is initiating it. And so God is making a new world in the midst of the old world through Jesus Christ. And it is similar to the first world in that he's bringing light into darkness and life into barrenness. And if he decides to do it in your life, it won't be something that you ask for. He will, just, he will invade your life. Just like he decided to make this world and he didn't ask us to make us. You know, you were formed. You were born. It just happened to you. You know, where you were born, it just happened to you it was God's purpose. That's how he acts also in the gospel. Now, being a Christian means becoming a part of the new world that God is making in Jesus Christ. And so that leads to a second question. How will I know that I've entered this new world that God is making? How will I know that I've entered this world? And I want to point out two, uh, two answers from this passage. And, and the first answer is, uh, you know that you've entered the new world if, if Jesus has forgiven your sins. That's a mark of being in the new world, that Jesus has forgiven your sins. And you cannot become a part of the new world that God is making, making without facing the reality of sin in your life. And you can see that, that from the beginning of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins is important. So John the Baptist is preparing a way for the coming of Jesus, and it says in verse four there, John appeared... Baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and this passage is really remarkable because it says that there's this huge revival that happened uh, around Jerusalem just before the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and it's described there in verse five, and it says, "And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and were being baptized by by John the Baptist in the river Jordan, confessing their sins." I'll tell you why this is remarkable, because these Jews were an oppressed people. They'd been oppressed for for centuries. They'd been oppressed by the Assyrians. They'd been oppressed by the Babylonians and the Persians and the Medes and the Greeks. And then finally now they were living under the oppression of the Romans. Eight centuries of living under oppression. And they had this hope, our king is going to come and rescue us from the sins of our oppressors. He's going to come and save us from, you know, the Romans and end the sins of the Romans. And then a new world will begin when God finally punishes the sins of the Romans. And there were a lot of Jews in in Jesus' day who were obsessed with the sins of the Romans. And they need to be punished. But when the Son of God comes to these Jews, he doesn't say, I'm going to come and deal with the sins of the Romans. He says, I'm going to deal with your sins. I think that's an important message in our culture If you go on Facebook or Twitter, you're going to read a lot about the sins of the world, the sins of the Romans. And uh, that's what we spend our time thinking about. And we are not doing what the crowds are doing in this passage. We blast the sins of people we disagree with. We name other people's sins. And there is a tremendous amount of of self-righteousness and judgment within our culture and that's a sincere question for all of us is what takes up more of our thoughts the sins of the world around us or the sins that we are doing within our own homes within our own relationships within our own relationship with god what are the sins that we talk most about the true mark of a revival when god is working forming a new world is not that we're able to talk about the sins of the world, but we were able to confess and name our own sins. And uh, Jonathan Edwards was uh, a great American theologian during the uh, colonial era in the 18th century, and uh, he le- he was a leader in the First Great Awakening, which was a revival that happened in America up, the, uh, uh, up and down the eastern seaboard. You know, George Whitefield was a great preacher of the gospel, and they'd have these revival gatherings, and People would come and hear about Christ and their lives were changed. And there were a lot of questions that people had. And they said, is this really God who's working? You know, is this just preachers who can stir up people's emotions? And this really isn't spiritual transformation that's happening. Or is this maybe Satan who is making all these religious fanatics? And so Jonathan Edwards wrote a number of essays on revival. How do you know whether a revival is really from God? And in one of them, it's called The the Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. And he lists out a number of marks that this is how you know God's really at work. You know, for example, if groups of people all of a sudden really care about the Bible, they want to read the Bible, they want to study the Bible, they want to talk about the Bible, they want to make sure they're reading the Bible correctly, that's a sign of the Spirit of God. Or he says if people are loving each other, in new ways. You know, there's new relationship, they lo- there's relationships. There's relationships. There's humility. There's compassion between them. Communities are being formed. People love God. If there's an outpouring of love, that's a sign of God's working. But you know what he said the number one indication of true revival after believing in Jesus is? Is the conviction of sin. People are willing to name their own sins and to face their own sins. And he says, Satan isn't going to bring the light of your conscience to point out your sins. He wants to dull your conscience to sins. He wants you to be okay with sins. But if people are willing to say, there are things that are wrong with me that I can't change about myself, that is the beginning of the new world forming. And you might ask, how do you shift from being someone who's obsessed with the sins of the world out there and now is willing to face my own sins that I need to, be, to deal with. How do we become like these crowds who went out to John the Baptist confessing their sins? And I think it's in that little phrase in verse 4 where it says repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist was preaching a baptism for the repentance of the forgiveness of sins. And, and this is how I think about it. You know, repentance means turning away from your sin to turning to God. And When you think about turning away from your sins, usually you'd be like, there's all these things I'm doing right, and I need to turn away from those, and I need to turn into living rightly. And what this says is no, you turn away from your sins, and when you turn away from them, what do you find in the Lord? You find the forgiveness of sins. You find grace. You find welcome. You find love. That's what you turn towards. And so how do you know that you've come into the new world? It's that you've faced honestly how self-serving your life is and turn to God and found, find that Jesus welcomes you even as a sinner. That's the beginning of the new world. And by the way, you know, where does that kind of transformation happen? That, uh, a key word in this opening passage is the word wilderness, See in verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. Repentance, turning from our sin into the love and grace of God happens in the wilderness. Wilderness is a place of barrenness, of harshness, of sadness, of futility, of lifelessness. And if you ever feel like you're in that situation, that's, it's in that kind of world that God's new life emerges. So how do you know that you've come into the new world? Well, the first answer is that Jesus has forgiven your sins. The second answer is that Jesus has changed, begun to change your inner life. Jesus has begun to change your inner life, to change the things that you care most deeply about. And uh, we only get a snippet of, you know, what was John the Baptist preaching about? I mean, whole crowds from Jerusalem are going out. What was he saying that was so powerful to them? And we just get a little snippet of it, and it's there in verse 7. It says, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now something that's interesting about this, all these people are coming out confessing their sins, and yet John the Baptist's message wasn't telling them to do anything different. He didn't tell them to do anything. What was his message about? There is one coming who is mightier than I. And this, uh, that's an interesting phrase where he's referring to Jesus who will come after him as a mighty one, as a powerful one, as a strong man. There's a strong man coming. And what kind of power is Jesus coming with? Well, John the Baptist tells us in the next verse, verse 8, I have baptized you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What does that phrase mean? I'll baptize you with water, but he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Well, We could talk a lot about the relationship between water baptism and the Holy Spirit, but I I think the big message is that water baptism is something that happens on the outside of you. The work of the Holy Spirit is something that happens in your inner life. You know, Jesus says who we are, our relationships, our decisions in life all come from the heart. They come from the way we think, from our emotional life, from what's inside of us. And uh, Jesus comes with the power to change our inner life. And we know that we've entered into uh, this new world when our inner life is beginning to change because of him. And I think that's a really incredible message, especially in our culture, because our culture is very um, fascinated with our inner life. You know, in the last generation, there's been a huge uh, increase of people seeking out counselors and therapists to talk about their thought life, their emotional life. And because we're needing help with it, it's like, I don't even understand what's happening in me. And of course, that's a good thing to explore. Like, I need to understand my inner life. But John the Baptist comes and saying, there is one coming who has a power that no other power has. No counselor has, no guru has, no life coach has, no pastor has. He has the power to change your inner life, to change your heart. What Mark is saying at the beginning of the gospel is, I want to introduce you to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Mighty One. And when you come to know him personally, it's like a new world is being created. He doesn't just change your behavior. He doesn't give you a list of rules to follow. It's more like he's remaking you. It's like at the beginning when God said, let there be light. Light will shine into your life. The creative power that made trees and mountains and rivers will come and form you in new ways. And you will find that power is full of love. That you won't be afraid to face your most hidden sins. And you will bring them to him and he will forgive you over and over again. And as you come to know him more, you'll find that the things that you cared most about in your inner life will begin to change. This is the sign of the new world. And my prayer for us this Christmas is that we would come to know the Son of God in deeper ways, who did what none of us would have thought to ask, to come down. We didn't think to make this world, we didn't think he would come as a child, but he has come to us. The Mighty One, Jesus Christ, born in a manger, who's to be, come to begin a new world among us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it's, uh, it's so easy for us to look at the creation around us and be filled with awe. And we pray that you would give us the eyes of faith, that the same wonder that we have at the stars and, and the mountains and the trees, um, that that same awe we would have for the spiritual world that is forming among us in Jesus Christ, his light. And Lord, uh, we long for your creative power to come and work within our inner lives. Lord, we see that our hearts and minds need transformation. We see that we can't change ourselves. We need the power of the mighty one, the one who is mightier than John the Baptist to come among us. Speak to us. So, Lord, we long for that work in our lives, and we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.